It has been such a joy for me to be here this week. And um, I want you to know that every day you have been lifted to the Lord in prayer. In the hopes that every night you would be lifted to the Lord. (laughs) That somehow we would all grow a little closer, find ourselves rooted a little deeper, We are, each of us, all of us, on an adventure with God. On Sunday, we talked about Abram and that amazing night under the stars when a covenant was struck between the father of nations. There was a problem. He had no son. And he had to confess that that was the thing that could hold him back from following. I don't know whether you have been bold enough this week to confess whatever it is that may be holding you back from following. But I want to encourage you by saying the adventure is worth more and the promise of God is greater than any problem you can put up there. (laughs) I promise you that. He promises you that. He's not only the promise maker and the promise keeper, he is the promise he makes. Hold on to him and you hold on to all the promises of God. We referenced the fact that there was a prerequisite in this covenantal relationship. And for us, it is belief. Do you believe God? Not just believe in him. Do you believe him? We can believe him because he is the presence that has been with us, even when we could not know it, did not recognize it, We're not really aware of it. And he is the great I am, the eternal, ever-present one who is with us always. The provisions of that covenant, you remember, Abram had to bring what God asked for, and he offered it. And then the birds of prey came. I don't know whether you've been able to identify any of those in your life this week, but I hope you will stay alert and fight them off. Don't let anything steal away the offering that you are called upon to bring. Keep your heart and your life on the altar. And there was power. Abram, the weaker, the lesser in the partnership of this covenant, was the one who should have walked this blood path, but God stepped in and walked it for him. In the person of Jesus Christ, God sentenced himself to die for you and for me, and he did. We've sung of it tonight, and our hearts thrill at the thought and wonder at the thought, are amazed at the thought 
that the Eternal would step in the time and give himself away <laughs> for us. And in God's economy, there is always a prominence. He desires to see our faith carried into generations beyond our time. I hope you believe that. I hope you've picked up some pictures of that this week. On Sunday evening, we spoke of Abram again and the fact that when God called him, he obeyed by walking backwards into his future, keeping his eyes fixed on the eyes of God and seeing his future reflected there. That requires focus on our part. And that he lived as, a, as an alien, a pilgrim, a Bedouin in God's garden. He lived light and was ready to move when God said, now is the time. He and his wife got into trouble a few times when they turned to see where they were going. Don't turn. <laughs> You'll trip up. Maybe you have. And when he was tested, he offered up his own and only son. He gave back the promise God had given him. He put it into God's hands. He I, my goodness, when I think of all the promises God gives to us, it is so hard for us sometimes to think, where, where are they? <laughs> We're already in the midst of them. And sometimes he's going to ask for us, he's going to test us and say, I'd like that back. Now we know what happened. God stayed his hand and the offering was in the thicket, and he and his boy rejoiced because God came through. And then on Monday night, I shared with you about this dawning in the east in Hungary and the amazing things that God is doing there, and I could recount that again in dozens of dozens of countries where people have been faithful and God has answered their faithfulness with miraculous fulfillment in the adventures they've set out on. Last night was a little different because last night we were speaking about a misadventure. That prodigal who had run from home and the older brother who had stayed at home resentful and hateful and just as broken as his younger sibling, but a father who ran out to meet that son. Grace extended, grace enfolding. All of these things connect. I hope you've been able to see the connections. But here's the thing. Tonight, we're going to look at the one that has been sent to help us on our adventures and our misadventures. 
we find the text in John chapter 16. Jesus is telling his disciples what is to come. And for them it is a suspenseful and curious and confusing and hmm, frightful time. John 16, beginning with verse 5. Now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them just now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own, on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. A little while and you will no longer behold me. And again in a little while you will surely see me. Isn't that amazing? Tonight, I'd like for us just to look at some principles that relate to the person of the Holy Spirit who is sent to accompany us on our adventure with God and to help us make it from beginning to end. We should be encouraged to know that God has made this provision and that Christ has sent the Spirit. In partnering with God in his eternal purposes that have not changed from the garden, <laughs> to see the restoration of all things that were ruined by sin, and to see all of his children come home. Those two purposes have kept me busy my entire missionary life long. I'm an ambassador for Christ, seeking to be faithful in representing him to a world that often does not want to know him, is resistant to him, is unable to understand him or his teachings. They're oblivious to him. They're not sure of this thing called grace, and they doubt his glory. 
Tonight, I'd like for us just to pause for a moment and give thanks for the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of missionaries who have gone to difficult places and laid down their lives on adventure, one God called them to, that the world may know him. I think of some who have gone into countries where they lost their lives because they spoke the name of a God unknown to the people there. And they lie buried under the sand, beneath the trees of foreign lands. Did you know that back in the early days of missions, missionaries did not take containers with them to the mission field? They took their coffin. That's how they packed all their belongings. They went expecting to die on a foreign field. We could name them and they would be a majestic list. But they've completed their adventure. They are in that angel throng we sang about. And they do not resent what happened to them there. They gave themselves willingly. I never expected to be home again. When I decided to go to the mission field, I went. And the church really was cautious about sending me. In fact, they did not send me. I went without their blessing. I came into missions through the back door, you might say. I expected to give my whole life there. My mother and I had a covenantal agreement. She said to me when I first went, promise me one thing, you will never come home when I call. You wait until God says, now is the time. And I never really expected to be here. The last five or six years of her life were very, very difficult. And very difficult for me being so far away. And a couple years before she passed, God gave me an opportunity. He lined things up and made it clear, this is what I want you to do. Go home. Work in this work of Global Nazarene Missions from the other side for a while. Help your mother. Love your mother. Be with your mother. She gave you to me I'm giving you back to her for a short time. I thank him that I was able to be with her when she passed. But we kept covenant together. People used to ask me, why don't you come home and take care of your mother? Well, I couldn't. We'd promised each other that was not the way it was to be. I don't know how much longer I will be here, 
my hope is that by God's grace, somehow, he'll allow me to go back and spend what's left of my life loving and serving the people I gave my life to. Not to say you're not among them, (laughs) but there's an unfinished work that I need to get back to. Will you pray for me that I'll have discernment to know the when and the where and the how of that? Here's the thing. None of us went thinking that we were going alone. None of us. All missionaries have this sense that they are disciples who have many opportunities to represent Christ in and to our world. And if we do this right, with integrity and grace, we contribute to, we participate in the eternal purposes of God, and we influence his world, and glory rises. That's a great way to live. Jesus in this passage is with his disciples and he shares this closing period of time with them, trying to help them understand what is about to happen. He's hinted at it, he's told them different aspects of what is to be and they have not been able to wrap their minds around it yet. And tonight... He says to them, I'm going away. He says, however, that he's going to send a helper who is going to enable his disciple band to complete the adventure that he called them into when he said, follow me. Leave everything that you know. Just like God said to Abram centuries before, leave everything you know and come, follow me. He identifies very three, there are three very specific roles that the Holy Spirit is going to play as the accompanying presence on our journey, on our adventure. And I believe that we must allow the Holy Spirit to fulfill all of these in our lives. And so tonight is kind of a wrap-up of all that we have talked about. And I want to encourage you that all we have talked about is possible in your life because the Spirit has come. The Spirit is coming into the world, Jesus said, and into the community of this disciple band to do three things. I want to make one thing very clear. There are movements in the church and in the world today that say we have moved beyond the the era of father and son, the God of old and the Christ of the New Testament, and we are now living in the Spirit age. And songs celebrate the Spirit and put Him on a pedestal. And people pray to the Spirit and put Him on a pedestal. And God is left to...
to the Old Testament and Christ is left in the grave and the Holy Spirit is the centerpiece. And nothing, nothing, nothing is more dishonorable to the Godhead than that. Why? If you were to look at an ancient icon from Eastern Orthodox faith, you would notice that when the Trinity is portrayed, the Father is here, the Son is here, the Spirit is here, and they are all pointing at each other. It is a perfect perichoresis, a perfect you Father gave me. At this point, he tells his disciples, you, don't, you haven't understood much of what I've said, but I'm sending a helper to you who's going to tell you, help you see, interpret, make it clear to you what I have said. He's going to take of mine just as I took from the Father. Do you see it? It's this cycle of perfect union, perfect relationship. But he says the Spirit's coming to do three very specific things. And I want you to get these three things down clearly in your minds because if you forget other things, remember he is on duty to do these three things. First of all, he is coming into the world to convict the world. It is a legal term indicating that there is enough evidence to convict us. That's kind of scary, isn't it? <laughs> There's enough evidence to convict us. And he says he's going to convict the world in regard to three things. First of all, sin. There are so many sins that could be named, but in this instance, the Holy Spirit, the primary thing he's on path for us, there is no greater sin than that. So I could come back to the first morning and say, do you believe? Righteousness is right relationship where there is nothing in the way. Right relationship with, right relationship with the created order of things, with the, with the world as God created it, as he made it. Are we restorative? Are we agents of restoration or destructive with God? when we are in right relationship with one another, when we are in right relationship with this broken world of ours in an endeavor to restore it, somehow we find that we're in right relationship with ourselves. The inner battles cease to rage. Righteousness was anything that could separate has been resolved. And Jesus says, what? Because I go to the Father. I am in right relationship with the Father. I'm able to walk right into his presence. And we embrace in the heavens <laughs> as if we'd never been separated. That's a beautiful picture. And finally, he's coming into the world to convict the world of its sin regarding judgment. Why? Because he says, because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Both the liar and his lies have been thwarted. 
They have been proven illegitimate. They have been proven wrong. The Holy Spirit's a busy fellow. <laughs> Convicting us of our guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. That's his first role. The second is one that I'm going to need a little help with. He, when he comes, will guide you into all truth. And there are three pictures of a guide that I would like to share with you tonight. The first is a picture of a tour guide. Anybody here ever been on a tour with a tour guide? Yep, okay. Do you know what makes a tour guide different from you? They know more about the topic than you do, or should do. I'm reminded of a tour guide that I met in Damascus who didn't know very much. I was not on his tour. I was there at the Babakhulil Market near the great mosque in Damascus, the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. Before the Crusades, the Basilica of St. John the Baptist was the worship place of Christians, Jews, and Muslims, all in perfect harmony. Did you know that? Inside that basilica is a tomb, a, a vault, that supposedly has the, the head of John the Baptist in it. And by the way, in case you're wondering, it was the Christians who first called Muslims infidels, not the other way around. I heard him trying to explain all of this to his tour group, and, and he said, and inside you're going to see this sarcophagus, and in this sarcophagus, in this tomb, in this container, in this vault, is the head of John the Baptist. And there was a little lady in that tour group. She must have been in her 70s. I thought, what are you doing in the desert, lady? <laughs> you know, she was just wilting because they all had to be wearing black covering. And she said, excuse me, we were just in another place and I don't remember where it was, but she said, we were just in another place, and they said that was where John the Baptist's head was buried. And the tour guide said, oh, no, 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 that's when he was a child. <laughs> so I guess he lost his head more than once. A tour guide is someone who knows their subject matter so well that they are able to point out wonders that you and I couldn't see, wouldn't know where to look, wouldn't know what they meant. I've got a great example of this. It comes from the writings of Thomas Friedman in his book, From Beirut to Jerusalem. He was on assignment there as a journalist during the time of the Civil War. 
And one of the greatest museums in all the Middle East was the National Museum in Beirut. In that museum were the great lions of the Babylonian Empire. It was a museum full of antiquities that could not be valued, they could not be replaced. It was magnificent. But because of all the shelling and the bombing and the bullets flying and everything else that was going on at the time that this civil war was breaking out among factions in Lebanon, the museum decided to encase every antiquity in reinforced concrete. They covered everything to protect it, and then they put concrete over it. So everything in the museum was in concrete blocks. From the smallest little glass of the Phoenician age <laughs> to the great lions of Babylon, to the gate of the magnificent city of the Hanging Gardens. Thomas Friedman wanted a tour of the museum, but he didn't know that this had happened. He'd been waiting for an appointment with the curator of this museum for some time, and finally his day came. And the curator said, if you'll come on this day at this time, I will show you all the wonders of this museum. Friedman came, all excited, walked in, met the curator, who was an old man who'd been on duty there for decades. He knew everything about everything. And as they went into the first antechamber of this museum, Friedman was shocked when he saw all these cement blocks everywhere. And the curator went over to one of these blocks and he closed his eyes and put his hand on it and he said, inside this is hidden a vase from 6,000 BC. Its color is opalescent with a hue of orange and purple at its base. He walked over to another and Block by block by block by block, in every antechamber, he would touch these great and small objects and would define them in such intimate and intricate detail. And Friedman is scratching his head thinking, why am I here listening to this? <laughs> the tour took quite a while. And the curator was at times in tears because he loved his subject matter so much. And when the tour ended and the curator said goodbye, Friedman went back to his hotel and he wrote these words. Never have I seen so much so clearly, having seen nothing at all. Did you know that the Holy Spirit is like a tour guide? He knows Christ, his subject, so well that he points out wonders in him that you and I cannot begin to understand or appreciate. We're on tour with the Holy Spirit.
And Christ, Christ is the one that we are longing to see. And he is pointing him out in intricate, intimate detail. Beautiful picture, don't you think? But the Holy Spirit's also a guide in this way. He is a teacher. Now, there are good teachers and there are bad teachers. I've had my share of both. When I was in high school, I was the, uh, the president of the Honor Society in my high school, and on one of those fateful days none of us look forward to, I had been playing basketball with some friends. Yes, I did that. And one fell behind me, and I did not know he had fallen behind me. And I went back to take a shot, and I fell backwards over him. And I put my right hand down to catch myself and snapped my wrist. They had to put me in a cast from here all the way down. These two fingers on the end, my little pinky and this one, they were fine. I could move them. But these two fingers and my thumb and my arm, useless. So the cast covered these two fingers and my thumb and wrapped around here and then went up to my elbow. And I had to keep that cast on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And yet I still had to attend school. My geometry teacher that year was a retired sergeant major from the Army, a drill sergeant. He hated me. I don't know why. The feeling was quite mutual most of the time. Because he would pick on me. I'd get into my geometry class, and I never really liked math. It seemed like all my math teachers were beastly. And he was, I guess, the worst of the bunch. He was like the Antichrist. He would call us up to, the, up to the blackboard to solve geometric problems and equations. And every day I could count on him calling on me, knowing that I was disabled for the time. This is what he would do. He would take a piece of chalk, you know, they're about that long, he would break it in half and then give it to me and make me stick that chalk between my cast and this finger and this finger and go up to the blackboard and try to resolve this problem in front of everyone while he sat at his desk and laughed at me. I would say that's a bad teacher. Would you agree? Yes, I couldn't stand him. But the principal called me into his office one day and he said, now John, here's we have a little issue. He said, you cannot be president of the honor society in this high school and be failing geometry. We're going to have to do something about this. And I said, do you know what he's like? Yes. I've had reports from other students. I've stood outside the classroom and watched the way he does you. He treats you. He says, I know all about it. But he said, he is one of our senior teachers, he has tenure, blah, 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 blah. 
But we're going to have to do something to turn this around or I'm going to have to ask you to resign. And he said, I have an idea. I think, I think if we could get you a tutor, it would help. Put that on pause for just a moment. I also had one of my best teachers throughout all of my education that same year. She was my creative writing teacher. She loved words and gave me a love of words. So much of what you hear from me, you can blame on her. I love words. I love language. I love the expression that comes from words. On top of all this going on in my life, my family was breaking up. My father left. He, um, he did something I didn't even know was possible. But when he left, he'd had, a, he'd had a massive coronary, a massive heart attack, and it took him a long time to recover. The doctors told us he won't survive another one, so whatever he says, do. Whatever he asks, give. Whatever, just don't fight him. Don't give any reason for him to get upset because you will kill him. That's not a good thing to say to a teenager who is thinking everything's his fault anyway. (laughs) And so, when he decided to leave and divorce my mother, when he filed the divorce papers, he filed the divorce against my mother my sister, and myself. We were all three named. Never heard of it before or since. But as a teenager, I felt responsible for whatever it was that had gone wrong. I could not sleep. I could not focus. With all of this and all that was going on in my geometry class with the Antichrist, I did not know what to do to keep myself sane. And this creative writing teacher told me after a class one day, she said, there's something not right. She said, you're not yourself. What's going on? And I tried to explain it to her, and she said, ah, yeah, that, that would explain it. She said, I've got an idea for you that might help. She says, it's, it's something that I do every night, and... I want you to forget all the other homework that I'm asking people to do right now because you're having a hard time with it anyway. She said, instead, I would like for you to do this every night and let me know that you've done it. Before you go to bed, I want you to write yourself empty. And when you have, fold the paper, put it under your pillow, Leave it alone and go to sleep. Did you know it works? I've called it creative kenosis. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus emptied himself, the kenosis hymn. He emptied himself. I had to learn to empty all of that rubbish onto paper so that it wasn't here and it wasn't here and I could sleep. If you're having trouble sleeping... Try it sometime. So I had my worst teacher and one of my best teachers the same year. 
but geometry was not getting any better. So I had to go back and say to the principal, if you've got a tutor that can help me, please help me. Now my tutor, there's a difference between a tutor and a teacher, did you know that? A teacher is a person who tends to stand up in front and lecture and tells you everything they know, and they kind of want you to know what they know so that they can ask you to kind of regurgitate it on paper. You know what that's like? But a tutor is someone of a different temperament. They come very close. They want you to actually understand, not just know the subject. They are in love with their subject. Will you come up and help me again tonight? I'm picking on you this week. I want you to sit right here at this table, and I want you to put this pencil between your fingers just like that, like I had to do. Perfect, okay. Only these fingers have to be sticking straight out. You know, you're a bit of a contortionist, all right? Okay. So, the Holy Spirit is like a teacher, like my good teacher, who had a way to resolve my problem, my misunderstandings, my hatred, to clear my mind enough to be able to see the truth. Get it? But the tutor was a young man, so much smarter than my teacher. He was a young man who had finished his bachelor's degree in advanced and applied mathematics, two master's degrees, and a PhD. He was a creative young man. Everything he looked at, he saw geometry, angles. <laughs> he could tell you every kind of angle that was in this room and where it originated and what it meant and all the rest. He would... He would love just to fill my head with pictures of angles and circles and diamonds and squares and rectangles and, oh my. Every afternoon he would come to my house and he would ask me how things had gone that day and I just almost burst into tears. Well, it was just hellish. My geometry teacher, and he said, I know all about him. He said, let's not worry about him right now. Let's think about how we're going to get you through this course. He said, I want you to love geometry like I love geometry. Well, that's a tall order. But he would come to my house, and he would put me at my dining table, and he would put a problem in front of me. And there I am with my these two fingers out. There you go. He would put me there at my table with my pen, pencil and my paper. And he would say, solve that problem. And so I would try. I would do my very best. And then I would 
just get so frustrated, I would throw my pencil down on the table. There you go. It's, it, it takes effort. And I would put my head in my hands and shake my head like, I can't do this. There you go. Doesn't he do well? Is he always disobedient? <laughs> then he'd say, no, no. Let's try it again. So... The pencil goes back where it belongs. The paper comes back where it belongs. And I would try it again. Now here's the difference between my teacher who laughed at me and my tutor who really wanted to help. He would do this. He would stand right behind me until I thought, oh dear, what's he doing? What's he going to do? And then he would reach over my shoulder, one hand on this shoulder, reach over my shoulder and take my hand in his. And just when I was about to make a terrible blunder, he would guide my hand to the answer. And then he would back up and he'd slap me on the back and say, see, I told you you could do that. The Holy Spirit is like a tutor who comes hand on shoulder close. When we do not understand Christ, when we cannot wrap our minds around the wonders that he's spoken, about the truths that he has given, about the demands and the the commandments that he has called us to fulfill, and we're confused by what we do not understand of him, He comes hand on shoulder close to us and says, I've got this. And I'm going to help you get this. The Holy Spirit's a tutor. Isn't that an amazing picture? He doesn't leave anything for us to despair over. (laughs) He awakens us to what is hidden in the subject that he loves so much that we come to love it too. You'll never believe it, but because of my tutor, I passed geography or geometry with flying colors, much to the dismay of my teacher. Thank you. You did well. You can go down. Let's thank you. I need you to go around with me because you do everything I ask you to do. The Holy Spirit is being sent to convict, to guide into all truth. Everything Jesus said, he's come to make clear. And finally, he's come to glorify Christ by confirming the full redemption of Christ in our lives and opening our eyes to all that Christ did and our ears to all that he said and the lights come on. Jesus said to his disciples, in a little while you will no longer see me. And again, in a little while, you will surely see me. How can that be? 
because the Holy Spirit's on duty. The Holy Spirit's on our adventure with us. We are not alone. And when we're confused and bemuddled and overwhelmed, the Holy Spirit is there, hand on shoulder, close, saying, we've got this. Could it be that this word of Christ to his disciples on this night is more than a foretelling of his crucifixion and resurrection? It is also a statement of his hope, the hope that he longs to see fulfilled in the lives of his disciples in the world. In a little while, you will no longer see me. I will not be right here. (laughs) And yet, in a little while, you will surely see me. What can he mean? You will surely see me because the Holy Spirit will open your eyes of discernment. You will surely see me because he will open your eyes to the Christ in one another. That's just amazing. With the help of the Holy Spirit whom I'm sending you to fill you, you should begin to recognize me in one another. And you are not on this journey alone. Can you believe that? Have you experienced that? If not, something is missing. Something is wrong. In one of the old Eastern Bloc countries, along the Balkans, there was a monastery in that city, and an old abbot who had given his life to devotion and the care of souls in that place. There were many monks in that monastery with him. He was cautious and careful to teach them what it meant to be dedicated fully to Christ for the sake of others. But he had a rabbi friend. There was a small Jewish community there in the same same town, and he had this rabbi friend. And one day they were talking together, And the abbot of the monastery said to his rabbi friend, things at the monastery are not good. Brothers are fighting each other. The cook prepares bad food and doesn't care that it's bad. The cleaners, they can't be bothered to do their work well. They just want it done. The choir, they sing without heart songs that speak of things not felt. I don't understand all that I have sought to teach them about the monastic life and our presence here as examples and illustrations of Christ's love to the world. 
to make a difference in this town. Everything is falling apart and I don't understand. We're failing to live out our faith in this community. And the rabbi looked at him and said, look at me. This is so strange. And the abbot said, why strange? Listen. The rabbi said, well, the rumor in the town is that Christ is amongst you. They parted company. The abbot went back to the monastery. He called all of his monks together, his brothers together. And he said, brothers, brothers, the rumor in the town is that Christ is amongst us. They began to look at one another, much like the disciples must have done on that last supper. They looked at one another and questioned and wondered, is it him? Is it him? Suddenly things began to change. They began to ask different questions. Would I fight with Christ? If he is amongst us, I don't know which one he is. Would I fight with Christ? And the cook, the chef, would I not prepare my best meal for Christ? And the cleaners, would I not clean and clean and clean again for Christ? And the choir, would we not sing as if we were the very choir of heaven? For Christ? You see, if we begin to see Christ in one another, conflict goes away. Disregard goes away. Mediocrity goes away. We want to do our best for Christ. Here's the thing. If we begin to see Christ in one another, our behaviors change and our influence in the world grows to his glory. We share these roles of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we do. For we too are to be a convicting presence in our world. Not a judging one. Jesus didn't say the Holy Spirit was coming to judge us. He said the Holy Spirit was coming to convict us. You and I are to be a convicting presence in one another's presence. In the world in which we live, in this church, in this community. We are to guide those who do not know. We, do we love 
our subject matter, Jesus Christ, so much? Are we so intimately involved with him, so intimately aware of him, the hidden treasures that are him, that we can, like a tour guide, point out wonders that others do not see? That is our role. Do we love Christ so much and understand him so deeply that we can teach others who he is? Do we love him and understand him so deeply that when our brothers and our sisters and others around us are confused and perplexed and failing, we can come hand on shoulder close to them and guide them, tutor them in the realities of Jesus. And are we an agent for the glory of Christ? Careful to lift him up, not to lift ourselves up, not to take the pedestal, but always to say, no, no, not I, Christ. Do our fingers always point to him? There is nothing impossible about anything we have shared this week because Christ is amongst us. And the Holy Spirit has been sent to convict, to guide, and to glorify. Misadventures they're resolved with the grace of a loving embrace. And adventures, they just get better every day. When Christ is before us and Christ is behind us and Christ is beside us in the person of the Holy Spirit. I pray that this week has changed you somehow. I can't preach these things without being made different by them. I've tried to keep faith with what God wanted me to deliver to you. I've tried to live up to what Christ wanted me to deliver to you. <laughs> And much of my day is spent praying that I'll be ready to deliver it to you clearly. Now the rest really is up to you. Are we revived for the sake of the world? For the sake of the mission he wants us all to go out on? Whether it's here or far, far away. We do not go alone. I know not when I go, nor where I go, from this familiar scene. But Christ is here, 
and Christ is there, and all the way between. And though I go for all I know to some dim vast unknown, though late I stay, or soon I go, I shall not go alone. He is with me. And I believe you are with me. And there are so many others with me. And I remain with you, though absent. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this week, for all that you have sought to teach us this week. From Old Testament to New, from ancient patriarchs to the person of Christ your Son and the Spirit who followed him, you have come to change us, to make us more like you. That we may change our world, that we may participate with you in your eternal purposes to see all things restored, not destroyed. Lord, please help us to be restorative agents in our families and in our friendships and in our places of work and in our broken world. Give us the courage to reach out and embrace others who are also your sons and daughters and to invite them to come home with us that we may all join together when we sing around your throne faces known and unknown languages known and unknown ages known and unknown someday and it may be soon we will arrive at our destination, deep in the heart of God, for where you are, that is where we want to be. Bless this congregation in this church, I pray, and may rich blessings constantly fall upon them, and may gratitude constantly rise in the deep praises of the heart. In thy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.